Hi, I'm Andalisi. And I'm Chef James Regato. And this is Essential Cooking. In episode three, we talked with farmer Michelle Lutz about farming in Detroit, how to start a garden, and a new program called Clinic to Farm, in which medical prescriptions are written for produce. Now, Michelle, aside from the physical demands of being a farmer in this day and age, what are the biggest challenges that you're finding? Have things changed, become more challenging in some ways than others? What are things like now? Um, I think that access to land is probably the thing that people are struggling with the most. You know, a lot of people want to pursue um, some type of growing or a career in growing, but the access to land is still a struggle. And then I guess the other biggest challenge as a grower is the climate. The climate is continually changing. And um, that's something that I've experienced. I've been been making a full-time living at growing food for at least like the last 25 years or more. And I've really significantly seen that as the biggest challenge because to be honest with you, I really don't know how every season's going to go anymore. The only thing I do know is that I'm not going to have a trifecta, not going to have a good spring, summer, or fall. One of them or two of them are going to be compromised because of the weather. And when did you start to notice that that became the norm? I always use broccoli as the example for this. So it's probably back going into about 2006 to 2008. I was so super frustrated because a lot of people don't know, but broccoli comes in three varieties. There's a spring, an early, a mid-season, and a fall. And there's varieties within those type three. And, you know, you go out with a big effort to get some spring crop in, okay? You're fighting a lot of elements to do that. And then what happens the first week of June? It's 90 degrees. And that window, that environment that broccoli needs to succeed, I kept losing it. So as a grower, by for sure 2008, I had already given up on an early variety broccoli crop. I only planted mid-season and fall broccoli from that point on. So that's a big, significant loss. I mean, you're talking about a grower that used to put in 10 to 25,000 first season broccoli heads. So that is when I really started to identify that things were changing. So now you've had to change how you plant, when you plant, all your entire What you can plant, yes. Had to change, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, what else would you say that has changed in that way? So what other crops have been greatly affected by that? Um, I think that anything that you're going to go in the ground, you know, in the beginning of the year. I mean, look at how many times Michigan has lost a fruit crop because we get an early warm up and then we get what is normally naturally going to happen, another frost freeze. So I think that fruit growers, they always have my heart because those are years and decades of work. And you still have to care for that fruit and those trees and those, you know, whatever happens, you still have to put all the input into it, but you're either going to have a compromised crop or no crop at all. It's true. And especially with the, with the wine growers, you say fruit mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of that is grapes and apples, which in our state, you know, is, is, is tourism. And it's, it's, you see winemakers up north that really want to be all Michigan fruit or all estate fruit or all Leland Peninsula fruit. And yeah, losing actually, um, I'm doing, we did a cider with Mari Vineyards. Ryan Burke from Angry Orchard and I went up there this past fall and we made a cider together from some wild apples that my friend Charles had on his property. And the reason why Sean O'Keefe at Mari wanted to make a cider was because the, the grape harvest was so lousy. You know, so when you have less grapes, you obviously have less wine, you need to diversify. So that's why you see a lot of these. I don't want to say lower level, but the, the more affordable wines out of the wineries up there are usually California fruit that's shipped in. And it's kind of, you know, people look down their nose at it, but you talk about a bad crop, it can, it can ruin your company. Right. So this, is, this isn't just, you know, losing some apples. This is like 
you know, Michigan's, you know, agricultural economy. Absolutely. So, Michelle, when it comes to the fall season, then you don't, you're not necessarily getting an extension on the other side of this. It can sometimes. Sometimes we, yes, we do. Sometimes we are blessed with beautiful falls that take us well past what we would normally get. And then sometimes we're faced with, you know, once again, an early killing frost that if you do not have the infrastructure to save a crop, I mean, you can be affected by that. So you always are strategizing about how to maximize what you can get out of whatever it is that you're working on. But know that, you know, you're working with something that's always changing, Mm -hmm. an environment that's always changing. You have to be willing to adapt to that. You know, it's interesting, too. I want to comment on that because as a chef, what I find, um, I don't say frustrating, but peculiar is that holidays and tradition really cut in the way of the growing cycle because sometimes you have tomatoes through October. Yes. And really nice tomatoes. Like if you got, I mean, you, there's some 80 degree Octobers that we've had. Yes. And people want pumpkins. And you're like, pumpkins also sometimes show up too early. So you'll have a beautiful pumpkin at the end of September, but like, no, there's no market for it. And then come Thanksgiving, they're looking for fresh pumpkins to make pumpkin pie with. And you're like, are you kidding me? Like, there hasn't, <laughs> you know, it's been snowing for two weeks. There, you know, and thank so you I, for feeling our pain. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, and I often try to tell people, and I, this is why a big part of how I designed Maple Gray was I didn't want to promise anything. I write the menu based on what's available. So I'll have someone that's like, can you do our wedding in October? I'm like, absolutely. Like, can we see a menu? I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, we'll talk about what you can and can't have. Allergies, no problem. I got you. But like, I will not discuss like whether we'll do a tomato salad or if it'll be a kale salad or if it'll be like, uh, you know, a pumpkin cheesecake or it's going to be like, you know, you know, apples. We, we don't know what is going to happen, especially like you said, like we do have beautiful falls. And I feel like if anything is consistent in, in the global warming is a, uh, is high heat in that late fall, October and early November. We might have frost. We might have you know dropping temperatures too. But hot Octobers are like a new is like a new thing. And so you do see peppers and you know uh, tomatoes way through September. So you need to get used to eating tomato salads later and expect your you know pumpkins kind of when they show up, like to, and roast and scoop and freeze versus like you know you know ending up with canned pumpkin for your for your pumpkin pie. Restaurants that have a set menu that yeah. depend on having this particular piece of produce available at this particular time. Those restaurants to me are archaic. And I think that Michelle and I, why we've worked together so well for I don't know, 15 years is because I've never once told her what to give me. I mean, even when she wants to know, what should I plant? I'm like, I don't care. Give me the good stuff. Because I just know that, you know, she'll act frustrated, but then she's going to plant whatever she knows. She kind of feels the weather coming, a little bit of voodoo. And then she shows up with the most beautiful product you've ever seen. So, I, I mean, I rarely ever ask for something from you other than just bring me something. You know, you, she always texts me what she has, and then I order that. And then yeah. you just make something out of it. I think that more, if more yeah. restaurants did that, people like Michelle would have a you know, much more flexible, uh, you know, life. <laughs> it well, wouldn't be so. And it's not just me. It's just we would start to break into this commodity-based system, yeah. you know, and, and that's what we really have. We have to take a different approach to food. Well, we have to take a smaller, more local absolutely. approach to it and be more flexible and far more seasonal. I mean, like what are our two biggest crops, right? It's soybeans and then corn. Correct. You know, and I mean, speaking of commodity, you know, for all the land, you just said it's hard to access land for people. And it's so true. I don't think that the average person knows how many farmers are renting land. Right. And like that to me is so messed up considering that the, you know, the composting and the hoop houses and the infrastructure you're doing to this land, the topsoil you're creating for someone else to like sell it off to become condos at any time. That's a problem. 
it's a big problem. And I think that we need like huge assistance. We need like like a change in hands and farmers should own their land. So do we find the small independent farmer um, an endangered species almost, or are they getting the support they need? Like how, how does that fit into the whole ecosystem of how we get our food? Because more and more people say, I want to go to that farmer who's doing growing things that way. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, can you talk a little bit? And James, I'm sure you know a yeah, lot no, about please. that too, but well, I'm really curious about yeah. that dynamic. So, you know, I think I was a relatively young farmer kind of getting into it in my 20s and being a woman, you know, kind of, um, and also just having a really hard time getting information, to be honest with you. I mean, I was doing this before, like, you know, Google was even around. The good news is that I feel like so many more people are interested in pursuing agriculture, learning how to grow, learning to be more self-sustainable, whether it's for just themselves and their own family or their community. So I think that I'm seeing far greater numbers in younger people and older people getting involved in growing, which is, you know, just phenomenal. Um, but a lot of those are, a lot of people are doing those on land that they don't rent. So it's just not, the future isn't secure. So you mean land they don't own? Right. I'm sorry, land that they don't own. Yes. Um, so, Michelle, people are uh, getting a lot more interested in controlling what goes in their bodies, knowing where it comes from. And so they're turning to, I'm going to plant a garden at my house. Now, I've had people, you know, I grow my own food, so does James. But some people get really intimidated by, I don't know how to start. Yeah. I don't know what to do. I don't think I'm out of my depth on this. Yeah. And, you know, nature's pretty amazing. You put the seed in the ground and then the thing grows. I mean, I know it's very simplistic, but it is a miracle every time it happens. And that's how it happens. But you have to make sure you're set up for success to yeah. do that. So can you just talk about just a like a quick tutorial for somebody that says, gosh, I really want to grow my own food and I don't even know how to start? Yeah. So definitely you got to keep it simple, right? You just have to do a couple of things. First of all, just evaluate what your conditions are. If you have a sunny front yard or backyard, you got to put the stuff that needs the sun there. If you have a shady backyard or front yard or wherever you want to grow, you have to plant stuff that's going to be okay in there. Pretty two general rules of thumb. Whatever makes a flower that's going to produce a fruit, so a tomato, a pepper, an eggplant, a cucumber, a bean, think melons, they need the sun. The more of it that they can get, the better. Put those things in there. If you say, I don't have that, and you still want to grow a tomato, put it in a pot, a large pot, put it in a sunny location. There's a lot of things that don't flower that are delicious, right? Greens, spinach, herbs, those can go into shadier locations. So just make it a little bit more simple for yourself. And then focus on growing what you actually like. Do not bother. So many times people put in their garden plants because they feel some kind of responsibility to have a garden like everyone else. Yeah. If you only want tomatoes, cucumbers, and poppers, go for it. You don't have to complicate this. And you don't have to start huge. You can start with, you know, something small. I am a big believer in raised beds, though, for be for beginners. It just makes things so much easier for folks. So whether you're using an actual container or kind of making yourself your own raised bed, your chances. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. For success, 
are going to be higher. So Michelle, if you were going to tell somebody to try something that they probably wouldn't grow that you're excited about, or in James, in your case, what would be great to cook, Yeah, that people are like, I don't know about that. I don't know what that is. Talk a little bit about what to grow that people might not usually grow and what you would like to see people cook more that they're missing out on. Sure. So for me, it's radishes. You know I love my radishes. <laughs> and they're like, they come all season. And then some quirky yes. little things like, you know, like we were just talking about kohlrabi. It's like, honestly, one of my favorites. And it's inexpensive and easy and quick to grow. And people really don't use it, but it comes in purple yeah. and white. And it's like a cabbage apple, in and my well, opinion. Yeah, and then you're, you're absolutely right. And the, the cool thing about kohlrabi is that you can eat the greens are so delicious. Yeah. The bulb is so delicious. It's yeah. like a very, it's a very high yield. Yeah. You know, okay, so so you talk, tell, tell us like what you would do with that. Well, for kohlrabi, I like to cook the greens like you would turnip greens or Swiss chard, just a gentle saute. They're a little bit thicker than you, than, mm -hmm. than you think, but once you start cooking them, they really break down fast. Okay. But the actual bulb, you want to, I like to just gently peel. They're really young. It's, you probably just scrub, but like kind of peel, you can get a vegetable peeler out or just a knife and cut away the, the nubs. And you really want to shave it thin. And I like to treat it like almost like a carpaccio. So like I would shave it thin and I would do any kind of nice acidic dressing I, I, you know, I would do like even like well, brown butter, a little sherry vinegar, raisins, pine nuts, and just kind of like just top that immediately. Even some shaved cheese or ricotta salada, like just really, really simple. But to, and that's that's kohlrabi. But radishes are the same way, in my opinion. So radishes, the greens are delicious. They're a little bit prickly when you actually you know clean them. But the bulbs, I love to roast radishes. A lot of people just think that they're only like for snacking raw. But if you like roast them hard, like like potatoes, they're so delicious. And the spice goes away if you if you if you don't like the spiciness of radishes. Roasting radishes like potatoes is very underrated. Mm -hmm. So you would roast them, and then what would you put on them? Just salt and. I mean, you could use salt, pepper, olive oil, and mm -hmm. like just eat them like with a you know with the rest of your meal. Once I mean, they're roasted, I also, yeah. yeah. I also like to do. Um, Radishes in a little bit of whey or even milk and kind of cook them down and then finish them with honey. So like radishes cooked in milk and honey are pretty, it's pretty cool. And I feel it's kind of biblical. <laughs> mm -hmm. Michelle, you and I have worked together for about the last 15 years and you have gone from large scale CSA farming to greenhousing in uh, a pretty boutique, you know, environment at the hospital to working for Detroit public schools to working for recovery park, which obviously, um, you know, the whole recovery part of that was, you know, rehabilitating people coming out of the prison system, teaching them incredible skills. And now you're at Buckets of Rain talking about, you know, getting actual prescriptions for food. So, you you know, I feel like there's not a lot of farmers that I've seen that wide of a spread, right? Usually, like, when I talk to a farmer, they've kind of been doing a similar thing for a, a long period of time. Now, you know, you're talking about, you've seen the socioeconomic impact of food and of the public school systems how like how can somebody that wants to help maybe somebody like a listener to this that's like how do i get involved you know like how do they help people like you continue to do what you do um well first of all have some appreciation for local food systems celebrate them support them embrace them realize that we need more farms within our city limits of all cities Okay, so for equality, for um, for all of those reasons. So we absolutely need people to understand that it's imperative that local food systems survive and um, that they are not looked at as, you know, a space where another store can go in or another apartment complex or something like that. We have to make space for green spaces, for growing food. I'm not saying that all open spaces need to be growing spaces, but we need to allow for that. We need to celebrate that. 
Um, and then we need to make sure that um, along with allowing the space, um, when I talk about supporting, find out where you can volunteer. So for example, the organization that I'm helping right now, Buckets of Rain, it really survives solely because of volunteers. So I am blessed with getting about 25 to 30 people a week that all come in and give three hours. That's how that food system is currently surviving. And that's a concentrated system of feeding shelters and helping those in need. If it were not for people giving their own personal time to come pull weeds, plant seeds, water crops, we wouldn't be distributing as much food as possible. And you're also talking about a free education. Correct. So if you want to start learning about growing, you can volunteer, help the community, feed those in need, yeah. and get an education on sustainable growing in an urban environment. Right. But I'm going to make this very clear. If you come and volunteer for me, you're going to get the work before you get the tip. <laughs> that is Because I get a lot of that. I'm going to be for real. Education in farming that doesn't involve Show me. Work. Show me. I And I will, I will open my brain. Yeah, I mean, you know, getting into farming was really difficult for me because I did not grow up on a farm. I grew up east side of Detroit. Trying to get the education was probably one of the most daunting things. Um, and I still have so much to learn, you know. But I promised myself if I ever figured it out, whether it was the successes or the failures, I wanted to be an open book. Yeah. And so, so I will share with folks, right. but I'm going to need a little sweat first. But I also, I think you're, you're kind of skipping over something that I, I find special and correct me if I'm wrong. You were certified organic. Correct. At Maple Creek at a time when sort of, this wasn't mainstream yet. Right. And you also, you, you were checking books out of libraries. You weren't like going online to this how to become certified organic, you know, DIY YouTube video talk through. Right. You were checking books out of libraries and reaching out to the government and figuring out how to become certified organic. And reaching out to a government that when I first walked into my um, very first farm service agency, I was told, your farm doesn't fit our forms. Our forms go like basically, you know, X amount of acres of corn and X amount of acres of soybean. And I don't know where I found the courage, but I said, how about you change your forms yeah. to fit a different kind of ag agriculture system? Like my system can be far more lucrative because that's really all they cared about, right? Is yeah. like how much could you make per acre with right. what you were doing? So showing them that, hey, there is a different system out there. It may, it may not be as, as straightforward, but there's a different system. Now, I don't want to open Pandora's box. Because organic has its value significantly. But I'm going to bet that you think natural, small-scale, intelligent growing is equal or greater than, in some cases, going to the grocery store and buying an organic bag of something. Yeah. You just got to have balance. That's all I think that we have to achieve in our growing systems. I'm personally over labels. I'm totally done with it because I think that there's fraud in all of it. Yeah. What I'm a big believer in is relationships. If I'm growing you food and you want to see how I'm doing it, yeah. ask me. Come and see it. Just be completely full disclosure. But finding a healthy balance in a growing system is all that's important. You basically want to have more good bugs than you have bad bugs and do what you can to keep disease and weeds at bay. You know, one of my favorite quotes from a, a farmer, uh, my, Tom Becker was a good friend of mine. I went out and visited Sunseed years ago. I asked him because, you know, he was like, what are you about pests? And he looked at me kind of peculiar and he said, well, we don't call them pests. <laughs> and that was a really, uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, you know, obviously how you kind of let 
the young, and you, I'm sure you know, Michelle, but like plants have immune systems too. You let them be exposed to certain amount of, you know, bugs and they kind of will build an immune system. And then the idea is that we eat that immune system and we become, you know, build our immune systems. So when you have everything bleached clean, you know, you're not getting as many nutrients as if you were uh, on a natural farm. Yeah. I couldn't be part of a system of course. that doesn't help something else or benefit another. It has to be a full circle approach or else it's never going to work. When I was in France working on an organic vineyard, the farmer took me over to a non-organic vineyard, a very pesticide, you know, like sterile vineyard. And you walk through it and you don't hear or see anything. Right. Only grapes. Right. You walk through an organic vineyard, there's lizards, there's snails, there's grass, there's weeds, there's you know, all sorts of morning glories growing. And you're like, how did they get this vineyard to be yeah. nothing but grapes? Yeah. That's I mean, if a scary. frog can't survive in that environment, yeah. do <laughs> How can you? <laughs> hey, Michelle, I wanted to ask you about clinic to farm. Yeah. Because we talk about, you know, if you get the nutrients you need from the food that you eat, you're healthier, obviously. And in this case, you can heal your body. And that's what this is based around, right? Right. That thought. Can you talk a little bit about that? So it's a um, partnership with the Say Yes Clinic that is right across from the Buckets of Rain Garden in Highland Park. And women are written a prescription for six weeks of at a minimum of 20 servings of fresh produce. So they come over to the garden once a week. I send them off with a couple of large bags filled with, like this week they got kale, collards, Swiss chard, beets, carrots, onions, cucumber, tomatoes, zucchini, cabbage, green beans, basil, sage. That's what they got this week. Um, the women share with me some of them about what of the some of the health ailments that they are dealing with. There's women that are on a weight loss journey, trying to lower their blood pressure, their blood sugar, and then every six weeks they go back and they get a checkup on those numbers, and then they're written another prescription. So some women, I mean, have talked about significant weight loss, and then really getting off of medications, really improving their health. It's incredible, and we hope to continue to grow that program. That's amazing. All right. So, Michelle, we have a couple fun questions for you. What food is always in your refrigerator? Oh, that's a good question. As far as produce, I'm always going to have garlic and onions around. Um, but it's usually just whatever's in season, to be totally honest with you. So I, it can't ever be um, probably one thing. Butter. Yeah, always say, have butter. But mustard, butter, pickles, yeah. anything that you're always like. I, Mu- I'm a, I love mustard, yeah, mustard. So definitely that's always in my refrigerator. Eggs. Always going to have those in my refrigerator. If you had to eat at a fast food restaurant, which one would it be? Boy, that's it's a hard question right now, though, just because of all the economics of who's yeah, behind I some know. of our fast food. But if I'd have to say if I'm going to pull over for a burger, it'd be a Wendy's burger and french fries. And one final thing, who's your favorite music artist? Oh, man. <laughs> Annie Lennox. Oh, good, good choice. Good choice. <laughs> She's probably like my number one all the way around. As a teenager, my two inspirations were Grace Jones and Annie Lennox. Well, we clearly like her taste in music. Yes, we do. And some of the incredible work she's doing around the Motor City. Thank you for listening to this episode of Essential Cooking. We would also like to thank LaMarca Prosecco for their support. Fresh from the hills of Veneto, Italy, you cannot go wrong with a little bit of bubbly. And we'd like to thank Joan Isabella, our executive producer, associate producers Lisa Brancato and David Lyons, production provided by Studios on the Pond and Rowan Nemisto, original music provided by the Mallet Brothers. This is a production of Detroit Public Radio, WDET. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and join us as we explore the world of food and how to cook it, right here on Essential Cooking.